Welcome to The Dumb Intellects, a podcast about what you should know, but don't. We're your hosts, Marin, Sadie, and Morgan. Welcome back, everyone, to The Dumb Intellects, and it's a very special episode, something new. This is all new. What am I saying? We haven't done any of this before. Something new. We have a guest on our podcast today. Do you want to introduce yourself and tell us about your podcast? So my name is J.D. Grover. I, I co-host a podcast called The Polarized Truth with my friend. As far as credentials go, I'm a single 23-year-old that dates sometimes, and more so like studies the psychology of dating as much as I can, and then observes other people's dating experiences and tries to find conclusions based off it and then implement those things. So those are all my credentials. Okay, JD, I've got a question. Um, Have you gotten more dates because of your podcast? Uh, I would say no. Uh, I haven't really like tracked it or been observing, but I think I feel more comfortable dating because of the podcast. So I think the quality of my dates has gone up more than the quantity. Oh. Which for me, I think is is a success, but that's because I view dating in a certain way. Okay, well, my quality is like very low. Like, <laughs> how's like, the quantity? Low quality, low quantity? Or? Low quality, low quantity. We're talking um, <laughs> gas station sushi. So maybe I should listen to your podcast now. I was going to say, it sounds like it would work out for you. Yeah, mm-hmm. so you've got one more subscriber. I've listened to a bunch of your guys' episodes and I I think they're great. So if anyone who's listening to this needs a new podcast recommendation, they do a really good job. How often do you guys release new episodes? So we were releasing them like every week, every two weeks last year. Mm -hmm. And then we did one episode for season two, but Billy, my co-host, who has much more to say than I do and is much more experienced and has a lot more credentials, he moved back to New Jersey. He's studying at Princeton. So he was just here for a year. So he's over there exploring that dating scene. And so we did talk a little bit, but. So is Billy single? Kind of. <laughs> for the viewers, for the listeners. I don't listeners. think he is. I don't think he is. He came back to, to Utah for two weeks. And I think he found a girlfriend. And I don't really know, to be honest, but he, he's been on a lot of dates. So I'm, I'm assuming if he doesn't have a girlfriend, he'll find one soon. He's a, a great guy. The podcast worked. Good for you, Billy. Good for him. Um, today we're talking about, oh, what am I doing? We have to start <gasps> with what we learned this week. I'm sorry. That Marin. Was, so JD, we usually start our podcast with anything that we learned this week, whether it's something deep, something superficial, it doesn't matter. Sadie, do you want to start? Mine is, I guess, sort of related to relationships. If you're a husband or a boyfriend or a male significant other this will be right up your alley this will be good for you to know i actually didn't know this and i'm a woman and it's about menstruation so oh hopefully we're all learning something new today so i learned this week that pmsing so basically the symptoms that come before a period are related to your senses basically it heightens your senses and so you're more sensitive to like sound and taste and smell and so like if you ever yell at your significant other because they're chewing loud or the TV's too loud, it's because your period is making your senses heightened. Are you kidding me? I am yeah. floored. I am floored. It makes so much sense because every time I'm PMSing, I'm always like, 
you are chewing so loud. I can't even be in the same room as you. And that's also why you sleep more is because all of your senses can like be at peace. Wow. Where did you learn that? In one of my classes, it just kind of like got brought up and then my professor like knew a ton about it apparently. So yeah. Okay. Sadie gets an award for the past seven weeks. (laughs) Yeah. All of your things that you've learned have been really good. Her like religious historical facts, her cilantro last week, this (laughs) good grief. Yeah. JD, what did you learn this week? So it's actually funny because what Sadie said reminded me of one thing I learned um, as far as like the sensory overload. So I have ADHD, ADHD inattentive. So I'm not like hyperactive, but I just have a hard time paying attention or thinking like coherently. And when I was a kid, my dad used to eat dinner with my family and I'd have to go sit at the table, but it got to the point where I couldn't listen to him chew and I'd get like extremely angry and like hate him for two hours after dinner. So I would go sit in our office and wait till my dad was done eating his food, but was still at the table. And then I'd go sit. So I'd come like open dinner up with my family and then I'd leave and go do homework. And I found out that like, that's an extremely common symptom for people with ADHD is they like hate certain noises. Yeah. So chewing when he ate cereal in the mornings, I can't even tell you how many breakfasts I just like was eating. He'd walk in and I'd just like dump it in the sink and just like <laughs> walk out. So that's something I learned about myself, I guess, and ADHD. Is that general. true of like other senses as well? Uh, yeah, but I don't think I, – I, all I read about was kind of like the brain scans with people that do have problems with, with certain sounds and noises. And it actually triggered parts of the brain that are triggered when people become extremely violent through rage. Wow. I don't know about the other senses, but I guess for me, it's not. It's more just like audio. Wow. That's such an interesting thing to like know about yourself and be able to identify when something is going on that you might be reacting to. It's also good to know in general, because like if you end up having kids with ADHD or like a spouse or a significant Mm -hmm. other, then like you're going to know, hey, I'm just annoying them with my sound and it's not like I'm a terrible person or they hate me. I shouldn't be offended (laughs) by this. They don't hate you. They hate that you're chewing so (laughs) stupidly. Right. I'd say we hate them for like an hour. Like like I said, the emotional (laughs) response is the same. They do hate you. So be prepared to be hated. Actually, never mind. It's 100% you and they hate you. So was it just your dad there's several there's several people people i won't mention names but they're like breathing and snoring also so yeah i I had to get like sound canceling earbuds traveling with certain people because i would just just their breathing would keep me awake so i'd have to fall asleep before them i actually like sleep with both my hands over my ears if i'm sleeping in a, a room with someone like with pillows because i just cannot i can't sleep and I just get like angry so I just lay there for 10 hours just like hating that person then they wake up and then I'm like kind of hostile to them R.I.P. <gasps> to your future wife holy <laughs> crap JD well that's one, th- one good thing for me to know is like now I know I can't marry a wife who breathes loudly and chews loudly and I have to find a wife that can live with my idiosyncrasies <laughs> or maybe like with the breathing and like what if she snores you just have to go to sleep like an hour early just do a sleep test with whoever you're dating say you have to record yourself for eight hours before i put a ring on it that's it not weird yeah let's just hope she's extremely patient and with that marin i have a really good fun fact this week and it's kind of valentine's related so i did a cooking class at Harmon's with my grandma i love it not your husband but your grandma yeah, with my grandma, and she was so excited about it, and it was a chocolate dip strawberry class, okay? Mm. And the lady, like the pastry chef, said that when you make chocolate dip strawberries, the worst thing you can do 
is dip the strawberries and then put them in the fridge. And mm. I don't know how often you guys make chocolate dipped strawberries, but I've made them maybe a handful of times. And every time I put them in the fridge and then I'm like, oh, these are gross. And the chocolate separates from them. Yeah. Yeah. Don't do that because the <laughs> chocolate will separate from them and they won't be good. You leave them on the counter. And the chocolate will harden because chocolate is hard at room temperature. It's just how it is. And then you can eat them the next couple of days without ever refrigerating them. What? Yes, there you go. And you have to use melting chocolate because melting chocolate has a higher percentage of cocoa butter rather than cocoa powder. So chocolate chips have more cocoa powder, which is why they keep their shape when you make cookies with them. You can thank Carmen's for that one. Morgan, what did you learn this week? I went on a date last night with someone who said, I don't have a car. And I said, okay, explain this to me once we got to the restaurant. And he said, I have this condition called, and I don't really know how to pronounce it, it's called choroideremia. It's a condition characterized by progressive vision loss that mainly affects males. So it starts by an impairment of night vision, and then it progresses to only being able to see out of the peripheral area of your vision Right now, there is not a cure, and it affects one in 50,000, so kind of rare, but also not like one in a million. Women are carriers, kind of like how um, women can be carriers for colorblindness. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I had no clue that this was even a thing, so we're driving around last night, and I point out something to him that's like on the far right, and he's like, wait, what? Where? And I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm sorry. I forgot you can't see. And it was at night How insensitive of you. Okay, we both laughed so hard though. He was like, thank you for like being normal about this. And I was like, well, so that's, that's my fun fact. Kate, well, sweet. We're going to talk about Robert J. Sternberg's love triangle. Sternberg is a psychologist and professor of human development at Cornell University who got his bachelor's from Yale and PhD from Stanford. So this is a smart guy. It's pretty interesting. I did not know a lot about this when we started researching. Like I knew I'd heard of it pretty much. And I knew the three elements of the love triangle. So I put myself at a three in term out of 10 of how much I how much I knew. I knew like a little bit because we talk about it in my major pretty often. And so I like know, like you said, the three elements, a little bit about like what happens when they combine or when one's missing. But to be honest with you, like the depth of it, I didn't know. So I put myself at like a five or a six Mm -hmm. to quote myself, absolute zero. I have never heard of Mr. Sternberg and I've never heard of his theory. So this is all new to me. So JD, as a, you're studying psychology, right? Yeah. So as a psych major who also hosts a dating podcast, how much do you know about this? Uh, 0%. Okay. <laughs> all right. On par. It looks like it's just a family studies thing, not, not a psychology thing. <laughs> I'm sure you'll have plenty to add from the things that you have studied. So just to jump in to the kind of the three elements that's where we want to start because that's kind of what's most important is defining the three elements making sure everybody understands so obviously it's a triangle so there are three parts to it the first one is commitment the interesting thing about commitment is it can mean different things in short and long term so in short-term relationships it refers to the decision that one loves a certain other so basically like 
you decided that you're going to be committed to that person. Like you have decided this is your person. (laughs) Um, And then in long term, this is what I think is really interesting. In long term relationships, it's more of a commitment to that love. So initially it's like, yes, this is my person. And then long term relationships, it transforms into like, I am committed to maintaining this love. And one of the main things that it talks about in that commitment area is the concept of shared goals and how like when a couple creates shared goals together, that's a sign that they are committed. That's kind of the overview of commitment. With intimacy, this is more of feelings of closeness, connectedness, and bondedness. And what I think is really interesting, they talk about this a lot in my in my field of study, the difference between an intimate relationship and an intimate experience. So basically, if you have an intimate relationship with somebody, you have the expectation that the closeness and the bondness is going to continue like long term. But if you have an intimate experience with somebody, it's like a a one time experience where you feel close to that person, but there's no expectation that that closeness is going to continue. If that makes sense. Like in the movies, when couples go through a traumatic experience together. Yeah. And they're like, oh my gosh, we're in love. And you're like, "Mm, probably not, but right. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and the thing is, This just shows how important it is to talk about expectations for me, at least, is what I've noticed. Because, like, if one person thinks that there's an expectation that that intimacy is going to continue and the other person has no expectation, that's going to lead to problems. Mm -hmm. So, so we have commitment, intimacy, and then the last part of it is passion. This is the romance, the physical attraction, and anything related to, like, the loving part of a relationship, that's going to be in the passion area. I have already learned so much, so much about love and also my past relationships, RIP. So the first, I guess, category of love, you can have one element of each corner of the triangle is empty love, which is basically love that's just rooted in commitment, which you are going to find in any sort of long-term relationship where the couple has lost feelings for one another or in other societies, it might be the first stage of a long-term relationship. So think like arranged marriage. When I was reading about empty love, the first thing that struck me is it's like, man, how many people in their relationships in long-term relationships get to the point where they're like, where's the spark? Where's the flame? You know what I mean? So I was wondering if like empty love is easier to recover from than others like is it easier to grow feelings of intimacy and passion with someone because you can create moments of closeness or you know do things to help re-fall in love with your partner again but recreating commitment feels like something that comes from like a deeper space so first i'm just gonna this is disclaimer i I like haven't dated someone since like seventh grade so (laughs) like any of my knowledge is from like reading about it or just talking to Seventh grade love still counts. Yeah, I think I swayed her with a box of chocolates because I made me look rich for like seventh grade uh, <laughs> status. So um, I don't know if it was me or the chocolates. <laughs> um, basically, so I have divorced parents. And so I guess like after the divorce, I kind of like researched a lot of stuff about like marriages and like the long term. Because obviously like we're young. And so from from our perspective, we're focused like we are in the honeymoon phase usually. Um, and there's actually a book called the owner's manual for the brain. Uh, it's written, it's written by Pierce J. Howard. He's a psychiatrist. Um, he basically goes through like all the elements of the brain, like the anatomy of it, like neuroscience, as well as some of like the cognitive behaviors. But one thing that he does mention is on average, the first three years of a relationship or specifically marriage, 
when you're interacting with your partner, there's an, a certain amount of dopamine that's released, which like excites you. It's like more of the intimacy, like there's a sexual drive towards it. But after those three years, it actually, your brain starts limiting how much dopamine it releases. And it replaces that with oxytocin, which is like the safe. It's like with the neurotransmitter hormone that's released when you feel safe. So if your relationship doesn't help you feel safe with that person, then that's usually when uh, I think people need to evaluate it or communicate that that's not how they're feeling because the sexual drive will come from or originate from feeling safe with your partner. Whereas before that happens, you don't really need to evaluate that. So I guess, yeah, that's super interesting because I guess in answer to your question, like it depends on the stage of the relationship almost. Mm -hmm. According to that, like in early stages, it might be easier to, to have the intimacy and the passion and not as easy to have the commitment, but then it like switches maybe. And it's, it would be harder to recover if you're going out of a long-term relationship. Right. It's just, it's kind of interesting with the love triangle because I think it can shift just because there's a dichotomy within the relationship of the man's or the male sex drive or like intimacy aspect of it, or the physical intimacy and the woman's because as men age, their drive goes down and then women's actually tends to go up as they get older. And so it's interesting how there has to be a balance in the relationship outside of that, because you might never actually be on the exact same page. And so that intimacy, like it might shift from, you know, you're both in a similar phase where you're very intimate and then another phase where you just have to be committed to the relationship because that aspect isn't as much there, but you still need to involve it because um, a part of your commitment is the intimacy. So as it shifts over, you have to focus on each corner. I mean, I feel like it's almost easier to create moments of physical intimacy or emotional intimacy within your relationship. That element of the corner, you can dedicate yourself to creating moments for you and your partner, you and your significant other to strengthen that. But I like strengthening the commitment sector. How can you do that with someone else as opposed to just like within yourself? Because to me, it seems like something that's very much rooted within you and your commitment towards a person as opposed to something that you create together. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. No, maybe there's no answer to that. I don't know. The only thing I can think of is the idea of shared goals. That's a really good point. Yeah. I agree because when I was listening to that, I thought back to my most recent, what I thought was a very serious relationship and it made me think, okay, what were our shared goals? Ah, there were none. (laughs) So like how committed were we according to this, according to this definition Maybe I, like internally, was very committed. I don't know how committed he was, but just thinking about it, it is so true. When you have shared goals, there's so much more commitment with that. I feel like that is the epitome of like showing rather than just being like, hi, I'm committed. Mm -hmm. Love you. Yeah. Food for thought. Yeah. Food for thought for sure. I don't know if we're going in particular order, but one of the next types of love is called liking or Sternberg also calls it just friendship. So interesting, this is when there is intimacy, but no commitment and no passion, which I thought was really interesting based off of what the surface level of those words meant. Like one of the definitions said, liking in this case is not used in a trivial sense. Um, it means true friendships, 
there's a warmth, a closeness, bondedness with another, but not the intense passion or long-term commitments. So with the lack of a long-term commitment, does that mean that you're not looking to have the friendship for a long time? Maybe I'm just not understanding the whole commitment thing. I think you can have an intimate relationship. We can just take sexual intimacy out of it. You can have an emotionally intimate relationship without any intent of, like Sadie said, sharing goals. Oh, You can be really close with someone and share things that are emotionally intimate and personal without any expectation of committing your lives together, if that makes sense. How that reflects in like a dating relationship, I don't know. (laughs) I think it's probably a good indicator that it's not a great dating relationship because I feel like you would want to bring in the other two parts of Mm -hmm. the triangle in a dating scenario. But as friends, like it's great to be emotionally intimate with somebody as a friend if you're not interested in the passion or the sex or the Mm -hmm. commitment aspect of it. Yeah. JD, do you have anything to add? Not as as much this time just because I feel like like you were kind of saying dating, it's a lot more complex because it's hard to make um, and build towards something until you are married because dating is kind of testing the waters whereas marriage is you've just decided to just dive in you know together so I think you guys would probably Marin and Sadie would have some good insights since you guys we've collectively married. only been married for like three years three total. years yeah we don't know anything <laughs> you guys are three years on me so you have three years <laughs> Hey, well, we've got a very diverse, very diverse crew. You know, we've got we're, we're the non, we're the non-lovers. <laughs> Just the last thing Sternberg does say. This may be obvious, but like, if you're in the liking phase of love or whatever, once you do either have passion or commitment integrated into the relationship, it is no longer liking. It is another kind of love. Well, and the third kind of love by itself I guess in one of these corners of the triangle is it's the infatuation section of of love in this stage of love or in this aspect of love it's kind of that like puppy love love at first sight it's like super powerful and you're just like overwhelmed with butterflies and emotions and it's just like it's that first crush when you're in sixth grade like it's that that kind of love There's no intimacy. There's no commitment. It's just like, yes, this is my soulmate. So when I was in fourth grade, I had the most enormous crush on this kid. Like I thought about him every day. There was nothing even to ground it. It was just like, you were just infatuated with him. Yeah. Couldn't even tell you what it was. Oh, I love that. Nine. Could this be a one night stand? I would imagine so. I mean, if you're Mm -hmm. just focused on like this person is physically attractive. I want to have sex with this person or like I want to physically be with this person. I don't know. A one night stand is more based in fulfilling your own needs and not like I'm obsessed with this person. That's true. Do you That's know what a I good mean? point. Honestly, if you had a one night stand with someone who you were obsessed with. Well, it, yeah, if it was Zac like, Efron in front of me, I'd then, be like homeboy. Yeah. Then you would think that there was more to the relationship. You know what I mean? Here's my question with this. So they talk about how powerful infatuation is, right? It's like all of the emotion that just like floods your brain. Um, so two, I guess a two part question. First, I would be super interested to hear what JD has psychology wise when it comes to infatuation, um, like what's happening in the brain and stuff like that. And then 
in a dating relationship, is this a good thing? Because it's kind of like the starting point where it's like, ooh, I kind of really like them. And then the other two come into play. Or is it a bad thing where it's like, ooh, I really like them, but there's no intimacy or commitment. So it's not a real relationship. Mm-hmm. I would Thoughts. imagine infatuation is highly correlated with attachment styles. I don't know if anyone's familiar with that. Like if you don't have secure attachment, infatuation is probably one of the results of that. And and I don't know if it would be necessarily love, like love triangle talks about, but I think that definitely would play a part in the beginning phases of relationship. Because I think infatuation is kind of the outcome of like Marion was talking about, like being focused on someone, like they're taking so much of your thinking capacity. And that can, that can come from genuine interest, but that could also come from like insecurity, which could lead you to, like you said, want to validate something through infatuation. So I think it gets mixed up a lot. It's not like black and white. There's obviously gray areas and everyone's kind of going to have both of those. But I think that's a common thing that happens. Like, for example, you'll be infatuated by someone and then they go on a date and then maybe you'll like make out with them or kiss them. And then afterwards you're like, well, that was like, I made that up 100% in my mind. <laughs> like that was just me. So yeah. To answer your second question, Sadie, about whether that's a good way to start a relationship or a dangerous way, I would think that it would be more of a dangerous way to start a relationship because you're basing it on an idea that you have about a person rather than the person. Like every single one of us can think of someone who we have been absolutely obsessed with, like my fourth grade example, and It's not even being with that person or spending time with that person or having experiences with that person. It's just the idea of them and things that you have projected onto them. Maybe like JD was saying, like your own insecurities projected onto them and how they can help fulfill those things within you. And so I think if you go into a relationship like that and you totally have blinders on, you might get to the point way down the road where you still have blinders on and you're in this relationship with someone who is not the person you had the idea of in the first place. Does that make sense? Yeah, no, I love both of those thoughts because I feel like that's the explanation. That's the answer is that it's probably not a great way to start a relationship because it takes the person out of it. It's Mm -hmm. just like the idea of love or the idea of a boyfriend or like a girlfriend, you know what I mean? Like it's the idea of it. Or someone who fits that image of the type of person you expect yourself to be dating. Something to add on to what Maren said. I can't remember which psychologist wrote a book about it and what the name of the book is it's something seduction but he talks about how the healthiest relationships according to like a longitudinal study they did showed that people who meet through friendship or at least their acquaintances for like they have the opportunity to be around each other for six months before dating actually leads to a higher rate of fulfillment in a relationship as well as a lasting relationship. And I think infatuation would play a big role in that kind of like Marin was saying, because you have those experiences around them. And I think you see them more for who they are. Something that the guy mentions that I think ties everything together is he said, time is the catalyst in seduction. The time frame might be a little different for everyone. Like it could be three months, it could be six months, could be a year, but like you can't change time as far as building kind of like the intimacy aspect. Whereas infatuation, you can like, you can just snap your fingers and like make yourself infatuated by someone if you like really want to. Anecdotally, in my own experience, Matt and I have known each other since like seventh grade. When we first became friends, I was like, had such a big crush on him. Almost like infatuation. I was like, wow, this kid is the best. And then we started hanging out and those feelings of infatuation kind of went away and we just became really good friends for a long time before we started officially dating. 
And I think kind of like JD was saying, having that like base of our relationship. Well, at a certain point we were friends and we were only friends and we had experiences that tied us together has been grounding in a way because it helps us go back to that if other elements of the relationship are like tumbling. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. Right. So I guess of the three that we talked about in the beginning, so empty love, liking, and infatuation, I would assume that maybe liking is probably the most healthy way to start a relationship because it's based on like intimacy and closeness and like Mm -hmm. friendship. Not to say that other elements couldn't, couldn't work. I don't know how you'd start with... Well, if you have an arranged marriage, you can go ahead and start with commitment. That's fine. (laughs) So the next combination of love factors is fatuous love, which is a combination of passion and commitment. And according to Sternberg, this is the kind of love we sometimes associate with Hollywood or whirlwind courtships where a couple meets on day X and they get engaged two weeks later and married the next month. So the commitment is made on the basis of passion without the stabilization of intimate involvement. We live in a college town. We live in a particularly religious Mm. college town where the end goal is always marriage. And so people, I feel like this is a very general statement, are more willing to jump into committed relationships without, like we were saying before, the time that it takes to develop closeness. Is it actually possible for someone to develop intimacy with a person that they've only known for a short period of time? I think a lot of people want something so bad. They want that relationship so bad that they kind of do try to force intimate like closeness. I've seen that. I've seen that in close relationships and it's hard because it's like, do you know the person? How well do you know the person? There are so many things that like you cannot force that time just allows. So JD, in your quote about time being the catalyst and I guess I can't remember how you put it in creating intimate experiences. Is there anything that you know or you have read about maybe if time is taken out of the equation, if those intimate experiences and emotional closeness is still even a possibility. I would say like taking time out of the equation just because you can't ever do that because time's always going. So I don't think there's any studies that could really like show that because like there's going to be a time passing when they're doing the study. But I I do think time's important. Like what Marion, I believe said is like there's experiences that she shared with her, her now husband beforehand and time did allow that. But I also think that a variable that is very important to put into the equation, even if time is a catalyst, is vulnerability. So for example, you could have someone that you are dating for three years, but if they're not like vulnerable, then the intimacy, like the time doesn't do anything. That's why you have people go into marriage, marriage therapy, you know, 20 years in a relationship because one of the, the partners never actually fully opened up about themselves. And so it, it became a roadblock in their intimacy. So yes, there's time, but I think being open is important. And I think the couples that do that earlier on can accelerate the process, not forcefully, but just naturally. That was a, that was a very good point. I completely forgot about being vulnerable. Yeah. So kind of, I guess, moving on and keeping this theme of intimacy. um, The next type of love is called companionate love. And this is actually a really healthy form of love. It's a love that you really want to have in your life just not with a significant other (laughs) necessarily because this love focuses on commitment and intimacy. So there's no passion and that's kind of where the problem lies in this type of love. It's 
characterized by like super close friends or family members. They said family members should have this type of love. They should be committed to each other and have shared goals and then also have intimate experiences together and bond in that way. But there's no interest in like the sexual or the physical attraction of that. So amongst family members and super close friends, this is a great type of relationship, right? But in marriages, it's it causes a problem later in life. And it could be going back to what JD was saying about the change in sex drive, I guess. Because without passion, you just don't have that like physical intimacy and you don't have that connection. I don't know if I have a super specific question. Kind of something that came to mind is like, how does betrayal come into this? Would this be a type of love that if betrayed is just heartbreaking and terrible? Because there's no sexual intimacy. So the hormones or whatever, I don't know. I read the most interesting thing that I now can't remember where I read it. Um, Of course, someone can source me on this or just tell me if it's fake. But I remember reading that for females, emotional betrayal is significantly more devastating than Mm. physical betrayal and it's flip-flop for male so if you are physically untrue to your male partner that's harsher than being emotionally untrue so as a female approaching this seeing this type of situation where you have commitment and intimacy and we'll just say for sake of argument emotional intimacy rather than sexual intimacy i would think that betrayal would be that would be the worst thing for this type of love that makes so much sense it would purely be like emotionally tied you wouldn't feel upset because they were passionate about someone else it would be that their commitment and closeness to you is invalidated wow Marin, that makes so much sense. I really love that because I I totally agree. Like when I was reading through this, I was like, wow, if one of my family members betrayed me, I would be devastated. But without like passion, I just didn't know how that fit in. But that makes so much sense now. JD, from a male's perspective, do you have, I don't know, contradictory It's interesting because actually usually the most damaging for either party though is an emotional affair just because it affects more of the commitment and the intimacy. So it affects two dynamics, whereas... A physical betrayal usually is just indicative of like the passion or infatuation aspect of the triangle. That's that's not the love triangle theory, but just applying that, I guess, like fact into that, it would make sense. I actually totally agree with that, that like you can't really have an emotional betrayal without hurting commitment and infancy, but you can have a physical betrayal with while keeping commitment. Well, I would say keeping commitment, but without completely destroying it. Okay, that's fair. <laughs> that's fair. Intimacy is probably affected by this. <laughs> oh, yeah, whatever. It doesn't even matter. <laughs> Means nothing. So the next type of love is very fitting for, well, I thought very fitting for Valentine's Day, but you may not think so afterwards. Romantic love. Romantic lovers are bonded emotionally and physically because they've got the intimacy and the passion. Ooh la la. This is kind of the honeymoon phase. Sternberg says, the romantic love is found towards the beginning of long-term relationships before really the commitment has been introduced. Interesting because I thought romantic would be, I don't know, the all-encompassing one. I mean, it's still kind of nice. You've got intimacy you've got closeness you've got the bondedness you've got the passion you want to be around them you don't have the the long-term goals 
So it makes me think my past relationships have probably stayed in romantic love, which makes me wonder again, do a lot of relationships go through phases of like each of these types of love? Because I guess, you know, maybe some start in the liking and then maybe travel through romantic and then hopefully not right away go to the companionate phase. <laughs> Stra- you immediately like, yeah, we're done. <laughs> Straight to grandma. We're hang on to each other. <laughs> Straight to grandma and grandpa. Yeah. They're like, okay, once was enough for me. You're, yeah, you're, that's it. That's good. I'm just saying, I've seen my fair share of old people, specifically in Italy, making out on benches. So, if you're a grandparent who still has romantic, passionate love, then I'm really happy for you. <laughs> I don't, that's disgusting. But I was going to respond to your first question about like it being more of a dynamic thing. And when I was, when I was doing research for this episode, a lot of the things that I read continued to suggest that it is a, like, it's dynamic going through these different types of love. So you can find yourself at stages in your relationship where you have less passion and more commitment and a little like you haven't had as many intimate experiences or vice versa. So you can like kind of rotate between these things and understand that your goal is to have equal amounts or maybe not even equal, but just amounts of each that are appropriate for the relationship that you're in. An example that just popped into my head is like, with pregnancy, there has to be less passion because you're growing a baby inside of you. So like, it just doesn't you're work. You're literally you know what I mean? uncomfortable 100% of the time. Right. And so in those situations, there is going to be significantly less passion, but then, you know, maybe that's going to be brought back. But a lot of commitment. Point. Yeah. Um, yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The faces of these two right now, they're like, mm. Yeah, hey, I'm learning something new. I've never even thought about that, so... So the last type of love is called consummate love, which is just, it's the whole kit and caboodle. It's everything in whatever balance you find meets the needs of your relationship. So this type of relationship, they have great intimacy. They are able to overcome any differences that they face and manage whatever stressors come across their relationship. And they see themselves as being truly happy with their partners. Anyone who's trying to approach a relationship who maybe has just the romantic love going on and is like scared about commitment. One of the things that I was struck by when reading about consummate love is the idea that you face stressors together. Again, can't remember where I read this, but it was the, it was something about how the idea of having like a soulmate or the right person, sorry for anyone who believes in soulmates. I think that it's absolute BS. (laughs) But um, to put it lightly, (laughs) yeah, you are wrong. There is like there's no right person for someone, but there is the right type of person that you can face difficult things with. And if you can face difficult things with someone and still maintain all these aspects of your relationship, then they are one of those right people for you. Consummate love would be love that can withstand tests of difficult things and can have goals to develop the parts of their relationship that are lacking. So it's not like the perfect love and like the ideal relationship because that's just a stupid myth that everyone needs to get out of their heads. What's funny that just came to my mind about that is I'm taking a marriage enhancement class right now and our professor got on and the very first thing he said in the very first class is he was like, let's be real. Marriage is about enduring. And I was like, oh, (laughs) I was like, okay. But I feel like in a sense, that makes sense now, right? Because like, 
Hopefully it's not just, that sounds horrible. <laughs> but it, it has to endure. Like it has to overcome all of these things mm-hmm. by having all three of the triangle. Three values. Yeah. Okay, this is my like niche nerdiness coming out. But I am a hard disciple of several personality theories or theorists. And using the triangle, I think an interesting way to approach relationships is, I don't believe in necessarily soulmates, but I do believe that certain personalities have other compatible personalities it doesn't mean they'll like be in love so that aspect isn't a part of it necessarily but i do believe that there is compatible cognitive i don't know how to explain it it's like they just like puzzle pieces fit together as far as like someone's cognition or like their functions and their emotional regulation and all that kind of stuff and the way they like perceive the world and the way they communicate and i think it's important to find someone who is compatible and then find someone that is compatible that you love and I think that I can play into it long-term and you don't like, you don't need to find someone perfectly compatible with like your personality, but I think it is good to be like aware of that when you're finding someone, because there are people that can understand you just like more naturally than others. Like it's, it's almost like an instinct from, from what I've kind of like observed. Cause, cause something Steinberg, what, how do you say his name? Steinberg? Sternberg. Sternberg. Sternberg? Yeah, whatever. Something Berg. <laughs> Mr. Steinberg. S.S.berg. Sorry, Dr. Burgish, you're getting mad. I know he went to Stanford, so he's probably a snob about his his doctor title. But yeah, like I, there's something really interesting he says when he in, on his website, and it says it's the love triangle is about the amount of love and the balance of love. And so the way I kind of like viewed that was kind of like there's a trend, and you have to pay attention to like the trend of your relationship. So I think there's a certain amount of love that can be distributed through the triangle, and as you grow together, you have to find a way to balance that amount of love. But hopefully, it's growing over time. And then separate from the love, I think there is some compatibility aspect of how well you just kind of merge together. And if not, then you need to identify also those aspects outside of love and figure out how to do so. But because of your love, I don't know if that makes sense. No, that's really well put, I think. Yeah, I think that was a great way to... That was a good way to wrap it up. Right, wrap it up. That your love should always be growing, even if it's in just a corner of the triangle. Well, thanks everyone for listening. JD, can you tell us where people can go find your podcast? Yeah, so it's on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Podbean. Yeah, so you can look it up. It's The Polarized Truth. Do you guys have any social media? We did, but I turned it into my gym account, so not, not anymore. Oh. <laughs> I didn't tell Billy about that one. But, but he also wants you to go follow that. Yeah, follow, follow Gyms or Scare on Instagram if you are trying to get in shape to have or to find someone that you want to be with, I guess. I don't know. It's, it's, you, you don't need to be in shape to find someone, but it can't help sometimes. <laughs> Especially where we live. JD's true thoughts come out. <laughs> yeah, anyways, you can be like cool and know how to love. You have to be a tool to like really find like true relationships. <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you everyone for listening. Um, go leave a review on our podcast. Leave a review on JD's podcast. We really recommend going and listening to it. It's super insightful. They have a lot of great thoughts. And yeah, thanks for listening. See ya. Oh, 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 oh,